I, I read a book that had a, a pretty significant impact on my life. The book is called Seeing with New Eyes by a Christian author and counselor named David Pollison. And what gripped me in this book was his description of the peace that passes all understanding that God provides his people, the way God quiets the noise in our lives, the way he calms our fears and stills our anxious strivings. I find myself reflecting back on this book in one chapter in particular again and again because of the anxious noise in my own life, my own insecurities and fears and strivings, that self-inflicted pressure to please and to perform. I mean, my heart and mind constantly deals with that noise and that racket going on inside. I think we can identify with that. All people can identify with that. In this book, the author describes a man who knows God's peace, who's experienced the peace that transcends all understanding. Here's what he writes about him. This man isn't noisy inside. He isn't busy, 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 not obsessed or on edge. Pressures to achieve don't consume him. Failure and despair don't haunt him. Anxiety isn't spinning him into a free fall. Regrets don't corrode his inner experience. He's not stumbling through the minefield of blind longings and fears. He's quiet inside. As you come here this morning, are you quiet inside? What is the racket going on inside your heart and your mind right now, even as, as I speak? Anxiousness, restlessness, worry, fear. Do you know the peace that passes all understanding? As it turns out, the man that David Pallison writes about is King David. In one of the songs that David wrote about 3,000 years ago, we get a picture of him receiving the peace that comes from God, the peace that passes all understanding. When we look at this psalm, we see him walking along that pathway of receiving God's peace. And so as a way to pursue that same peace in our own lives, I'd like to read that and reflect on it with you. So let's turn together in our Bibles to Psalm 131. In the Bibles under your chairs, you can find that on page 519. If you don't happen to own a copy of the Bible, I know that there are some in the back on the information table. You're welcome to take one of those on your way out as a gift from Redemption Hill. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So in this psalm, David describes how he has received God's peace by letting God be God in his life. Friends, much of our anxious striving and worry comes from us trying to be God in our lives, jumping into his shoes, trying to carry out his work that only he can do. And when we put ourselves in that place, we, we strain under that burden because we're not designed for it. So this is a picture of David letting God be God. It outlines his pathway to peace for him, for his people then, and for us today. And so as we work through this psalm, I'd like to highlight four steps along the pathway of peace 
that we see in Psalm 31, four steps along the pathway of peace. Number one, David humbles himself before his God. He humbles himself before his God. He writes in the first part of verse one, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high, he says. He's using two expressions, two figures of speech in his own native language to emphasize the point that he has humbled himself before his God. He has made himself low before his high and lofty and exalted God. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. When we read poetry in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we often see these parallel synonymous statements. They reinforce, they, they restate, they drive home a central truth that the poetry writer is trying to get across to God's people. And so his central truth here is, Lord, my pride is utterly broken down. I've come down off my high horse. I've stepped down off the throne in my life that only you should occupy. And when I try to occupy it, things don't go well. I'm straining under that weight. So I've come down. He says his heart isn't lifted up. The heart is the core, the center of a person's being. So the core of who David is, the centrality of his personhood, has come down, has been laid low before his God. He comes to the point where he knows who he is, and he knows who God is. He knows his role, he knows God's role, and he doesn't try to mix the two. He ceased trying to do the work that only God can do. That's a picture of humility, a humility that leads to peace in David's life and in our lives as well. When we try to occupy God's position and God's role in our lives, we become anxious and, and fearful. I mean, that's not a place that we were meant, designed to, to be. We try to do the work that only he can. Our hearts fill with worry. And so, so worry, when you break it down, it's, it's rooted in pride, a desire to lift yourself up before God. Charles Spurgeon, a British pastor in the 19th century, puts it this way. The very essence of anxious care, the very essence of anxious worry is the imagining that we are wiser than God. We thrust ourselves into his place to do for him that which he has undertaken to do for us. We work to take upon ourselves our weary burden as if he were unable or unwilling to bear it for us. I mean, just, just think for a moment. What worries you in life? What presses in, causes anxiousness and fear? What do you worry about? Do you worry about not having enough? God is Lord of provision. Do you worry about your, your body, your health? God is the giver and sustainer of, of life in our bodies. Do you worry about not having someone, not having a spouse? God is the Lord of marriage. Do you worry about unsaved loved ones, parents, siblings? God is the Lord of salvation. In what ways are you thrusting yourself into God's position, trying to do for him that which he's undertaken to do for you? I mean, can you, can you see the worry and the stress that flows out of that mentality? We've got to let God be God in our lives. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter echoes the words of David in Psalm 131. See a parallel theme here. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Do you see the connection between humility before God and casting your burdens, your anxieties on him? Peter gives the command, humble yourselves, and then he goes on to describe how we do that. The means of carrying out that command is by casting our anxieties on the Lord into his hands. 
We humble ourselves by letting God be God in our lives. We're not trying to shoulder the burdens that only he can take care of. Provision, salvation, protection, sustaining our bodies. He, he shoulders that load. And when we place ourselves in a posture of lowliness and humility, we find that we're in a position to receive his uplifting care, his grace, his sustaining presence and peace in our lives. In the introduction to this Psalm 131, you'll see in the small print right before verse 1 starts, this is a psalm of ascent. And the word ascent that we find here carries the idea of, of steps or a stairway, upward motion into the presence of God. And we know that it's, it's likely that David and his people, Israel, sung this psalm as they ascended the hill to Mount Zion. Three times a year they'd go for, for a festival, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Ingathering. And as they went, they marched and they worshipped. They would sing psalms as they went up to that temple mount to worship there. They made themselves low as they sung praises to him. They put themselves in the proper posture before God, humble worship. And as they did that, they were caught up in his joy and in his peace and in his love. This is a picture that we see all throughout Scripture. When we make ourselves low, when we worship him in dependence, we are in the perfect position to be cared for, to be lifted up, to be recipient of his grace. All over Scripture, Old to New Testaments, we see it in Psalm 131. Jesus describes it in, in Luke 18 as well. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. James teaches on it in James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we've seen it in Peter as well. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, his own perfect timing, he will lift you up. He will care for you. He will sustain you. Why does this calling for humility <clears throat> before God pop up all over Scripture? Why do we see it so often? Because pride is, is the root of all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our toil in this life. It, it's rooted in, in pride, to, a desire to, to be God, to take hold of the reins in life that only he was meant to take hold of. What was the prime temptation that the serpent hit Eve and Adam with in the garden? What did, what did he say? You surely won't die if you eat of that fruit. Genesis 3, 4, and 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was so powerfully alluring about that? You will be like God. That fallen desire resides in each one of our hearts. It's in there. It's in there. You don't have to look too far to take hold of the reins in our lives. And so God knows the destruction that flows from that. And so time and again, he's saying, humble yourself. Humble yourself before me. Humble yourself. It's all over the place. Just do a little a search on it. It comes up everywhere. He's teaching us the truth about ourselves. We are in the most healthy, satisfying, secure place when we are laid low before him, depending upon him, worshiping him in humility. That's the best place that we can be. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Where? Where would you say pride exists in your own life? Where's pride evident in your own life? How are you seeking to stand in the place of God in your own life? What reins are you holding on to in, in your life with white knuckles, fearing so bad that if you let go of that, 
God is not going to come through. The reality is, only when you let go of those reins are your hands in a position to now receive from God, to be lifted up, to receive his grace. So, so hard to just, just, just let go. I trust you, God. That's not mine to bear. I trust you. Humble ourselves before him by casting our cares, our anxieties, our hurts, our disappointments, all of that before him. And he will lift us up in his appointed, perfect timing. A second step along the pathway of receiving God's peace. David surrenders his need to know. David surrenders his need to know. He says in the second half of verse 2, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He finds peace in the reality that God's mind is infinite, God's understanding is unlimited, and his human mind is finite, his human understanding is limited. And so David confesses he's done trying to fully know and understand the work and the ways of God in his life. I will not occupy myself with things that are beyond me, he says. Paul reaches the same humble conclusion in Romans chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Friends, if we're to have true peace in this life, we've got to come to the point where we surrender our need to know. We surrender our need to fully know. We've got to turn from our desire to be God's counselor or his consultant. He doesn't need our input He doesn't need our permission to do what he wants to do in our lives. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he needs to do to carry out his good purposes in us for our good and his glory. He knows exactly what he's doing. Just pause and think for a moment about the stress and striving in your own life that stems from you occupying your heart and your mind with things that are beyond you. Just think for a moment. Why doesn't my dad believe in Jesus Christ. Nothing more than for him to believe. Why doesn't he believe? Why is my body afflicted with this ailment? Why? Why am I in this dead-end job? Why don't I have a job? Why don't I have a spouse? Why hasn't God provided the blessing of children? Why, Why do I have this tragedy in my life? I had an opportunity to make a new friend last week. I was at a wedding reception. I love wedding receptions. You're put in a place where you meet people and you hear stories that you otherwise wouldn't. And so um, I got to talking to this guy. Turns out he's a Christian. And this conversation blessed me immensely. We just started talking about life. He asked about me being a pastor and how God led me to to that point to, to, to be a pastor. And then I asked him about his family. He was delighted to tell me about his children. He's so proud to tell me about his five children. And then he turned to me and he said, Dane, you know, I had another son. He was killed 14 years ago this month, August 1st, in a farming accident. He was two years old. It was my fault. I was responsible. And I swallowed hard. I didn't know what to say. I said, I'm so, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm so sorry to hear that. And then I, I just paused for a little bit. I said, would you, would you mind if I, if I asked you how, how you process that? 
how you dealt with that? He said, my church surrounded me. They loved my family. They prayed for us. They were there at the emergency room, 50 of them. They were there at the emergency room when he died. They were there at our home when we came home. Desperate, 50 of them prayed for us. They were there. They were there. God served us. God loved us. God gave us peace through his church. And then he said, I'll never know why my son died. But one thing I do know is that God has shown me the depth of his love through that. John 3.16 has taken on a whole new meaning for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He said, I know what it's like to lose a son and I can tell you I could have never willingly gave up my son but that's what God did for us. That's how much he loved you and he loved me. God taught him about the depth of his love through his tragedy. So in the midst of that, there's much he doesn't know. Question marks all over the place. Much he doesn't know. Much that is beyond him. But God has led him to the point where he doesn't occupy himself with that which is beyond him, but with that which is in his grasp. As we talked last week, he wasn't focused on what he didn't know, but on what he did know, but on what God had taught him, that his church was there for him, that God sustained him through it all, and that God has a deep, unparalleled love for his people as displayed by the willing offering of his own son, his only begotten son. He got that love. He got a picture of that. In the midst of your own difficulties, tragedies, frustrations, hurts, disappointments, there is much that you don't know. But what do you know? What has God taught you? What is he revealing to you? Has he taught you to long suffer in prayer for your dad who doesn't know him? Has he taught you the priority, the importance of, and the urgency of just speaking those words of the gospel? That's how, those are the seeds that God uses to save. Just speak those words of the gospel. Has he grown you in dependence through your physical ailment? Has he taught you to receive help from other brothers and sisters during your, your, your sickness, your hurt? Has he developed patience in you in that dead-end job or that not-yet job? Patience. Has he cultivated in your heart a desire for your coworkers there who don't know him, who are lost? What's he doing in that workplace that seems like a dead end to you? Has he shown you the strategic opportunity that you have to serve him in your singleness? And has he impressed upon your heart your true identity as the beloved, precious bride of Jesus Christ? Through the heartache of childlessness, has he taught you and impressed upon your heart precious children all around in your community that have no home, that are in desperate need of a home? How's he tuned you in to other kids around you? And through tragedy and loss, has he shown you his love through his church? How has he sustained you each step of the way? Oh Lord, I do not occupy myself with things that are beyond me, but I will occupy myself with that which is in my grasp. I won't occupy myself with things I don't know, but with what I do know. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, there is a wonderful promise that you must know, that you must occupy yourself with, that you must cling to no matter what you go through. Romans 8, 28, probably the most peace-giving, perspective-providing verse in all of Scripture for a Christian. 
listen carefully to what we do know in the midst of difficulty. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all things work together for your good. He knows exactly what he's doing. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of his followers. Nothing takes him by surprise. God, God never has an oops moment in your life. He knows exactly what he needs to do to shape you, to form you, to fashion you into the image of his glorious son, to grow you in Christ's likeness. That's the great project of the Christian life that we would reflect Christ, grow in sanctification. He knows what he's doing. We must occupy ourselves with this truth. He is good, and he's doing good things in us. It brings us peace in this life. So far, we've traced two steps along David's pathway of peace in Psalm 131. He humbles himself before God. He surrenders his need to fully know. And finally, in verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So David finds peace in the presence and provision of God. He describes the, the calming peace that he receives by painting us a verbal picture of a child with its mother. As, as a child finds peace in the loving presence and sustaining provision of its mother, so does David find peace in the loving presence and sustaining provision of his God. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. An important question we have to ask is, how does that happen? How does God's loving presence and sustaining provision, how does, it, how does it come? It comes through his word. It comes through his word. We encounter God through his word. He draws near to us and comforts us through his word. He sustains and satisfies and nourishes us through his word. In verse two, David speaks as a man who has meditated and feasted on God's word. Just a few psalms previous to this. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Having been upheld and nourished by God's word, by his law, David is stilled, he's calmed, he's nourished, he's satisfied. He's been with God. And the transformation here is dramatic. I mean, picture a hungry infant on an airplane. Irritable restless, beginning to melt down. Dad isn't much help at this point. That, that baby, that child needs its, its mom, the loving presence, the sustaining provision. There's no substitute. And as that little baby is upheld and fed, stillness, peace, satisfaction comes upon that baby and all the passengers as well. There's a peace that comes in that time. As a child of God living in a fallen world, we grow restless, irritable, we begin to melt down, and we need to be in his presence. We need to be in his word, being fed by him, taught by him, satisfied by him. There is no substitute, no substitute for his presence and his provision through his word. And as you are gently upheld by him through his word and fed, you receive this calmness that, that David's speaking of, this peace. I recently had the chance to spend some time with a college friend of mine who has just become a parent. He and his wife just had their first child in, in February, named Jackson, handsome little guy. And so I, I asked him, I said, how has the transition to parenthood been? How's it been for you? He said, oh, overall, pretty, pretty good, but about two months ago, it was a 
It was an awful time. It was terrible. Jackson was so irritable, inconsolable, wasn't sleeping. We, we tried everything. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. We tried strolling and rocking, feeding different, different times we, to no avail. We didn't know what we were doing. So finally, they, they go in and see their pediatrician. And after about 36, 30 seconds, comparing his current weight with his weight of about a month ago, he looks and says, he's not getting enough to eat. He's not getting enough to eat. And so he recommended supplementing nursing with formula in a matter of a half a day, calmed, soothed, comforted. Think about your own phase of life right now. Your interrupted sleep patterns, the stress from your job, school, your irritability, your worries, your fears. Are you getting enough to eat? Are you getting enough to eat? Some of us as Christians are starving inside, trying to live the Christian life in a state of malnourishment. That doesn't work. You will end up starved, dried up, broke down along the side of the road. We've got to feed off his word, nourish ourselves by his word. My life's crazy right now. I can't possibly spend regular time with God in his word. I mean, you don't even know. My, my life's crazy right now. I'd say that's all the more reason for you to be spending time in God's word. You're too busy not to be with him. How can you possibly navigate through all that is before you, all that is on your plate, without the wisdom, the rest, and the nourishment that comes from God's word? You can't, you can't possibly go through life navigating w w without him as a Christian. All the more reason to carve out some time. What might it look like for you to carve out regular time each day to be with God in his word? What, what, what would that look like? To read just a, a chapter of the Old Testament, book of the Old Testament, a chapter of the New Testament, to get 10 or 15 minutes, and then to pray about the truth that you've just read, that God would illumine your heart and apply those truths that you might live them out. 20 minutes of un, uninterrupted time with God. What might it look like you to do that. That 20 will turn into 30 and 30 into 40. That's the effect that God's word has. It creates a hunger. Once we, once we feast it off it, we have an additional and increased hunger. It's the effect that God's word has. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. God's word has power to soothe the anxious soul. I have trouble sleeping at night. There are times when I will get up hours before my alarm is supposed to get off and I'm trying to go back to sleep, I know that I need sleep, and when you know that you need sleep and you're thinking about it, you can't sleep. And so this is a cycle, right? And in those times, I've learned to, to fight the, the anxious worry about life and ministry and relationships and family and all the stuff, all the brokenness, the guts of life, to fight worry with God's word. I've been a Christian for about 11 years. My dad shared, shared a verse with me shortly after I became a Christian. He said, remember this, Dane. Just, just remember this. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I go back to that. Weary soul goes back to that as a life-giving well again and again. I will just say it and say it and say it until I can go to sleep. What scripture, what verse has God impressed upon your heart? What do you know? And what would it look like just to bathe your heart and soul, your weary soul in that? Go back to that as, as a well. Go back to it again and again. It provides calmness and peace in our lives. So along this pathway of peace, 
David humbles himself before God. He surrenders his need to fully know. He finds peace in the presence and provision of God's word. And then number four, he places his ultimate hope in the Lord. He places his ultimate hope in the Lord. David encourages God's people then and now to place their hope in the Lord. Verse three, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Notice how David speaks to the whole community. The first two verses, they're like a, a personal testimony. He's sharing his experience. And we learn from that by observation. But then in verse three, he starts preaching based on his experience, the fact that he's put his hope in the Lord. And then he says, people, put your hope in the Lord. You can bank your life on the Lord. Trust in him. Put your hope in him. It's the climax of the song, the core truth that provides us peace, hope in the Lord. How do you define hope? How do you define hope? Hope is a patient, confident, expectant trust in the faithful promises of the Lord. Hope is a patient, confident, expectant trust in the faithful promises of the Lord. We know that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Covenant maker, covenant keeper. And twice in this verse, he refers to God with his covenant name, his promise making, keeping name. Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, D in your Bibles. It's Yahweh in, in David's original native language. Yahweh, that's, that's the personal, that's the saving name of God, the, the covenant-keeping name of God. So he's drawing our attention, his people's attention, us now. He's the promise maker, the promise keeper. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Beautiful promises. We as God's people find hope and peace in the promises of the Lord. And so if that is true, then we, it's imperative that we know the promises of the Lord. And so I, let me ask you today, do you know the promises of the Lord? Are you well acquainted with what he's holding out to you, his truths that he's holding out to you that sustain your life? I think one of the best practices as we approach God's word is to just grab a pen and a notebook and mark down the promises that you read. They're everywhere. So as you take that 20 minutes and you read a chapter of the old and the new, just mark down promises. They're everywhere and reflect on them. Remember them. Through every situation of life, good, bad, high, low, we can find peace and perspective in the promises of the Lord. The ache of loneliness and isolation, that's real, friends. That is real. God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Joshua 1, Hebrews 13, it's everywhere. In your battle with habitual sin, and we all have habitual sin, when you're getting pummeled, you're making no progress, but it's, nothing's going on. Philippians 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. He's, he's not finished with you yet. Stay the course. Abide. He's not finished with you yet. He'll complete what he started. When we fall headlong into sin, and we do, there's forgiveness. God holds the promise of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we're crushed by guilt and self-condemnation, you can find hope in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're battered by sickness, suffering, sorrow. It happens in this life. Think of the life to come, the promise of Christ's return. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's a promise that you can hope in. 
They're all over the place. Just make a list and go back to them, promise after promise. There's one promise that's foundational, bedrock to all of life, that we cannot forget. This promise that God has made and kept gives us ultimate peace in life. Our greatest source of unrest, anxiety, and brokenness is caused by our sin and the separation that it results in with God. That's the greatest source of hostility, enmity in life. We are, we are referred to as enemies of, of God, haters of God. There's a wall of hostility as a result of our rebellion and sin. We are desperately in need of peace from God, desperately. And out of his great mercy and his love for us, he's provided that peace for us. 3,000 years ago, God foretold of this gracious gift of peace through his spokesman Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The promise of God's fulfillment, that promise and his fulfillment provides us everlasting peace in this life. He, Christ is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who bore every ounce of God's wrath against our sin on the cross as he hung there, battered and bloodied. All of God's wrath funneled down onto his shoulders. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility, shouldered every ounce of the wrath that you and I rightly deserved. And God has nothing but love and peace and grace for us. Nothing but love and peace and grace. No more enmity. We are not enemies. We are adopted children of God because of the Prince of Peace. And that peace becomes yours, peace becomes mine, through faith in that work of Jesus. Faith in his perfect life, sacrificial death, triumphant resurrection. Trusting in that provides us peace. David encourages his brothers and sisters, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This side of the cross, we look through the lens of Christ. O church, O Christians, Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ from this time forth and forevermore. In the midst of the, the noise, the racket of this life, difficulty, suffering, disappointment, hurt, we find peace as we humble ourselves before God, as we surrender our need to know, as we feast on his word and as we hope in Christ, we find peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we humbly come before you in need of your grace in our lives, in need of your peace in our lives. Father, you know our anxious striving. You know what we're stressed and worried. Father, forgive us for grabbing hold of the reins in our lives. I pray for each person here Lord, that we would let go of that which you've promised to do. We wouldn't occupy ourselves with what is beyond us, but with what you have shown us. Father, I pray that you would help us Spend time with you. Just sit at your feet and receive from you your wisdom, your encouragement, your correction, your nourishment. And Father, help us to trust in Christ. I pray for those 
who are here, who've not yet trusted in Jesus, we pray that by your grace, through the movement of the Spirit in each heart, you, you would cause them to believe. Bring about your purpose and your plan for us. I pray for this church that you would continue to grow it, build it, carry out your kingdom purposes here in Medford through Redemption Hill Church. In Jesus' name, amen.